Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter Nine. Ailerada cornered me before we left. I'd been waiting for it, actually, so I wasn't without a tart response at the ready, but as usual, the guy still managed to blindside me. Be careful, the two of you. I stood in the companionway, just outside the circuitous engineering entrance, pressure suit on, save for the helmet, which Sherry had taken on ahead. Ben Roggenston and I would use the emergency airlock down there, and he'd all but told the others what we were going to do. No one balked and they added little distraction to the plan besides warnings and similar wishes of luck as this one now. The two of us just stared at each other as if there was something to say. I had nothing, and he either had the same, or just as usual, which he held back this time. It must have been plain that I had no patience for his pissant management crap right then. Stay in communication. We will, I repeated, then pressed, but give us radio silence until we break it on our end. We might need quiet. How long do you think it will take? I don't know, but if we make a circuit of the ring and come up empty, we'll be right back. Two hours at most if we have no hits and no trouble. If we get a ping off either of their comms, we'll try and move in and have a look. Finally, after another pause, he began with a nearly conciliatory tone. Ejac, look, I know you didn't sign up for this. And I do too, Paz, I injected, cutting him off as I turned toward the entrance to engines. Even his amends were grating. It had to be me. He followed silently, and when we met the others at the furthest aft point, which was where the tiny one-person cycler was situated, he took Ben Roggenston aside and spoke quietly. Sherry was adjusting the comm fittings on the helmets. Rena stood at a nearby workbench and had the rifles and a small box that turned out to be Griselda's literal weapons locker. These panther things don't fit in here, you know, she said matter-of-factly. They come apart. Just leave them in their case or get a bigger box for everything. Gandhi has a good one, I think. You're taking them now, though, right? I opened the ship's locker and looked at the sad contents. The stunners were small holdout types, like you'd have in an ankle strap or maybe give to granny for peace of mind. The pellet gun was actually a pretty nice thing, such as they went. You wouldn't want to get hit by it without armor. An attack from it probably wouldn't kill you, but I bet it was possible. The small box of ammo for it held 500 shots. I took this and the pellet gun as well as a stunner. We're only bringing one rifle. The other one stays here. Use it on anyone who tries to get in that isn't us. She looked at me like I was speaking gibberish. I don't mind standing around with it looking good, but I'm not going to shoot anybody. She wasn't upset. She was just stating fact. Fine. Give it the pause. Someone needs to be ready. We're taking half the standard ammo for it and all of the ape rounds. We might need them, and you guys don't want to wreck the ship defending it anyway. She just kept looking at me with those black elfin eyes for a long while. 
then gave me a hug with unexpected strength that might have crushed the breath out of me if it weren't for the suit. Don't die. We have to paint the bulkheads and cargo next shift, and I can't reach the high parts. That made me laugh. Who knew she was such a smart aleck? Ben Roggenstein was still talking quietly and grimly with Ayla I figured that had to be owner stuff and chain of command business or whatever, so I didn't interrupt. Sherry stepped over with my helmet and turned to leave, but I placed a hand on her arm. She looked at me with a bland face, but I was surprised to see real fear in her smoky brown eyes. I'm sorry. I am. We'll talk when I get back? Ejak, you don't owe me any. Please. We'll talk? Her cheeks were ruddy as she blushed in embarrassment and what I took to be the effects of a little blindsiding of my own. She reached up to squeeze my hand and gave a quick, fragile smile, just as the chief engineer and chief pilot, the only two owners aboard, or maybe alive, broke up their little meeting. You're not ready, the bearded man grumped affably. I'm ready. Helmet is not on. How is this ready? We moved closer to the airlock as he gave Sherry some last-minute instructions she already knew. From this side of the bulkhead, the lock consisted of a basic control pad and a large steel oval-shaped hatch designed for suited figures, maybe ones burdened with engineering tools or other equipment. Though ostensibly intended for emergencies, most engineering crews used locks like this for external maintenance tasks so they wouldn't need to haul their tools and equipment over to the main locks amidships. Sherry gave the older man a kiss on the cheek, then helped with his helmet, while Rena secured mine. We did mic checks and tested the scrambled channels that had been agreed upon, then waited for the embedded suit systems to register all green. After that, Ben Roggenston stepped into the airlock, closed the hatch, and cycled. Waiting for my turn was awkward. People didn't know what to say to me, but felt like they should be saying it anyway. A. Lareda stepped close, as if he wanted to speak confidentially, but he talked through his headset on the open channel we'd be using, so I guess the move was for effect. Just follow Gasto's instructions, Ejok. He has the training. I know, and you know this isn't my first TAC mission either. Then I guess you'll be okay. His tone was back from the strange place he'd been going to before, and I found this to be a genuine comfort. I could tell suddenly that it was deliberate. It was best for this guy to be the same slightly snide, judgmental fuss budget with me that he'd always been. If we ran into trouble, I couldn't be wondering what he was really thinking, not even for a moment. I had to chalk up another one to him now, and it was really pissing me off. I'm outside now. Time for Jacques. The chamber of the lock was actually larger than I expected. In there, I found a copy of the input display pad from the other side, and it showed the air pressure dropping fast, as did my suit sensors. See anything special out there? Sherry asked her boss. Now, only can see main drive from down here. He's reminding me. Must to do stress crack inspection on thruster codes soon. Good job for you, Sharita. Still need 11 hours for class 4 license. Oh, I can't wait. Look, the station schematic we have on file shows an inspection port above you. It's probably empty, but if someone's in there right now, you'll be spotted as soon as you boys clear the thrusters. We'll go ventral, then forward and around, I put in, more to do something with the remaining few seconds than because anybody needed reminding. I opened the exterior hatch as soon as the cycle finished. Slowpoke is out now. Closing hatch. Make sure it's locked. 
No one in or out until we return. Ja? We have it. Be careful. Okay, I put in. Radio silence from Griselda, please. After you, my elderly friend. Hm. Can still put whipping on your snapper. Whatever he meant, I had no doubt that he could. In fact, I was utterly counting on his capabilities. The suits were of a bulky, older kind, with crush-resistant, not bullet-resistant, I'd been repeatedly reminded, overlapping plates bearing some obscure nobleman's crest, but they were in excellent shape. In Ain't Space, this style was often referred to as a scale suit, and you usually only saw the like near stations or around fleet ships in dock. Very expensive to buy, they'd been part of Bin Roggenstein's military severance. They sported integrated micro-thrusters at various points around their exteriors. No foldable scoots or puff frames were required to buzz around outside when you wore one of these babies, as they took cues from the wearer's body language. Move a certain way at a certain speed and angle, and the suit saw it as a desire to move through space. I'd had several dozen hours of sim time on similar systems. I was a little herky-jerky once we got moving, but I was in control. The chief engineer moved like a porpoise, displaying the kind of grace that gravity and age normally disallowed. He looked as if he'd spent years doing exactly this, and likely he had. Suit-to-suit -suit communications were set to laser comm, just in case. No one could overhear our conversations because Griselda had, at some point, sprung for omnisensitive coatings on the scale suits. All we had to do for laser communications was keep a piece of them in visual range of each other. Nano emitter receivers and a sprayed-on polymer layer, nothing like them. The thruster points on my scale suit flared with a muffled hiss inside the helmet, putting me in a tight line behind the engineer. His own puffed him down and along the ventral plate of the ship, silently as a ghost. Griselda's wide belly, gray and lowering like a rain cloud, but bright and clear for all that, spread out above us glowing from reflected light off the pearly, cloud-mottled planet far below. The silent ship seemed almost stately. A moment later, I disrupted the contemplative silence as we drifted past a wide dimple in the hull. See? This is what I was talking about with this spray-on armor. And there's another one over there. Those are bubbles that formed when it was first applied. We get hit at any of these points, it'll be like having no armor at all. Ja, Bin Ragenstein knows. Cannot afford to replace. Welcome to civilian life. I get that, but you wouldn't have to replace it. They make a patch material for this kind of stuff. Just spread it on and it expands to fill the low parts. Supposed to be pretty good. He thought for a moment, floating there in weightless study. Is okay idea, but Jacques will have to convince Charita. Oh? You vote on your projects down in engineering? He didn't respond. He didn't have to. I'd caught his ham-fisted suggestion that I do something about the social mess I'd made of things. Yet it wasn't his place to push or pry. It wasn't his business. And I didn't need to be thinking about it at the moment, thank you very much. Then again, neither did he. Okay, I'll talk to her. I mean, I'm already going to talk to her, so I'll talk to her about this too. Eh, Jacques can be do what he wants, Bin Roggenstein not caring. I couldn't see his face, but his tone was a happy one, so that was one less distraction on both sides. We moved across the bottom hull and cleared out from under it on a lateral course. Griselda was coupled to a standard berth located at the center of the ring-shaped station. 
It was just one of four berths that this small high dock had available, set equidistant around its hub on four corresponding spars projecting out to the ring. In addition to the berths, this hub contained maintenance facilities and at least one repair shop that I'd noticed. The actual cargo load zone that Griselda had for its use, near where the fighting had occurred, was at the top of one of the spars. This pylon bore two elevator shafts, one for personnel and another for large loads, neither of which were safe for us to use right now. The high dock, reflectively bright like the ship, had designated port and starboard sides, just like any spacecraft. Being a wheel that spun to simulate gravity, its ventral and dorsal sides had slightly different meanings, or rather, there was a lot more bottom than top, and the top was also the interior hull of the ring. This inside diameter would, naturally, be faster to circumnavigate and save us on reaction mass. Once we'd matched vectors and velocities, we could just set down and walk all the way around. The matching part could be tricky if you weren't careful, or were using unfamiliar equipment, so I just followed Ben Roggenston's lead. We puffed off together slowly, slowly, and the inner hull of the station rose up to meet us in kind. In mid-flight, we could see the motion of the spin, and the chief engineer turned to move with it. I did my best to ape his graceful turns and pivots, and almost succeeded in flipping over entirely, but he reached out and steadied me with a quick jerk. Then he gave his suit just a kiss of forward thrust and, still moving, stepped onto the hull like he was just coming down a set of stairs. I moved past him by quite a bit, but soon found myself conveniently approaching the base of the next pylon over. Think we were spotted? I asked as I took a grip on the edge of a small cowling right where the shaft met the ring. I twisted toward the hull and settled my feet down. Disorienting for a few seconds, the action made me sway, but then I found my balance. Apparent gravity here felt like it was less than half of what most people considered normal, but it would be plenty for moving around. No way to be knowing, <clears throat> came the grunted reply as he ducked under a projecting radiation sensor stalk and stepped over to me. Best to be believing we were and keep eye open. We had set our suit comms to make continuous pings via radio on all the ship freaks that Carmi and Dell's collar mics used. With the HIDOC's network down, all we had was the cruddy direct call functionality designed into those things, the purpose of which was to facilitate private communications across relatively small open spaces. These little radios didn't have the range of something like our pressure suit mics, which was why Griselda couldn't call directly without an intervening data net. With all the metal of the hull and who knew how many floors between us, we'd need to be right on top of them just about in order to catch a blip from their comms, assuming it worked at all. We walked clockwise around the ring for several minutes, with just breathing to be heard from both of us. I was relaxing a bit, because I figured that if we'd been spotted in our initial approach, likely we would have had company by now. At one point, I thought I felt a short, hard vibration under my feet. It only lasted the sparest moment, but Ben Roggenston felt it too and stopped in his tracks. Explosion. Not close. Up there, maybe. He pointed to the opposite side of the ring, hundreds of meters above our heads. As if to confirm his words, autocorrecting stabilization thrusters, one on port ahead of us as we walked and one on starboard behind, flared for a second then alternated quick puffs until they had returned the high dock to its proper orbit and rotation. 
We studied the arc of the ring above us, but there were no visible blowouts that we could see, nor any other sign of trouble, so after a time we moved on. We hadn't gone twenty paces past the next spar when my suitcom registered a ping from Carmi's collar mic. I said as much to the older man, and a few steps later he picked it up as well. Then I stayed put while he proceeded on until the signal faded out. He was eighty or ninety meters away by then. That much range easily encompassed the width of the ring as well, so it was a big possible radius. Maybe more in the center? I asked rhetorically, and moved inside the signal range until the mic's ping came back stronger. Carmi, Carmi, come in. It's Ejok. Do you read? Captain, he's been Rogenstein. Hearing? Hearing voice? We both called for several minutes, broadcasting on all the frequencies. We walked back and forth, then over to port and starboard before meeting again in the middle. There was no reply besides the automatic ping. The lack of response was frightening, so I pointed to the spar we'd passed in which I'd noticed an airlock door. I started off toward it even as I spoke. We have to go in. Now, waiting. Jacques must be waiting. He trotted carefully and with a high stride back along the dorsal hall to me. Carmi's right below our feet somewhere, I challenged. Or at least her collar, Mike, is. It's our only lead. The airlock back there is the closest way in. Could be guarded. Who by? There's a battle going on in there. Explosions, firefights, rioting. Who would place guards on hatches that open on the vac? You wouldn't tie up your forces under those conditions. Keeping shirt on. Ja, we go in. But must to be careful. And together. He broke radio silence with Griselda then, and relayed what we'd learned and what we were doing about it. Gaston, are you sure about this? Aylareta asked with obvious concern. Eh, will be nothing, he dismissed, using a tone far more casual than any he'd offered me since we started. Fighting is on the other side of station now. I'd feel better if you fellas were back here. Carmi and Dell would feel better back there, too, I put in, but Ben Rogenstein gave me a black look, so I shut up. Together, we hiked back to the spar and stopped in front of the airlock hatch. It was pretty big, considering how comparatively small the station itself was, so it was likely designed for a maintenance team to exit and enter altogether. Via laser comm to me, he said, Is good. Easy to open this kind. Take weapon. When I move door, you see Anyone you do not know, anyone, you shoot. He unslung the rifle and handed it off, then dug into his tool belt for a gripper cutter and a ZG ratchet. He made short work of a maintenance panel nearby, tearing open aluminum casing and running two separate bypasses on the sensor lines within, he disabled any alarms that might have been set on the hatch. Then, he used his ratchet to crank the door's gearing by hand, back and forth, back and forth, sliding it open in a slow, jerky style. I was standing off to the side, looking into the dark airlock beyond. The hatch was halfway open when I saw movement, quick, awkward, and low, just behind the door, and I shouted in shock because I really hadn't expected any guards. Move! Move! Instinctively, Bin Rogenstein threw himself to the side, and with a nearly unconscious finger twitch, I opened up with the Panther. (laughs) 
You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care. <laughs>